You're listening to WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. The Fired Up Show starts right now. And welcome, everybody. Welcome to Fired Up, right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. This is Steve. I host the show each week as we talk about politics, but not the politicians. And we get into the mechanics of what makes our system or breaks our system here in the U.S. Uh, Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. We got a power pack show this week, and we're going to get right into it, as always. So let's get it started, as we always do, with our review of where we stand with the COVID pandemic here in this country. We've got 42.9 million cases of the COVID-19 pandemic reported with 687.8 thousand people who have died from the disease and 387.3 million vaccine doses have been administered. And that breaks down to 55.2% of the population eligible to receive the vaccine who have received both doses and 64.2% having received at least one dose of the vaccine. So we continue to move forward on that front, but as always, there's more to do and more that we need to do. As we reported last week, the FDA has issued its approval for the uh, Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine approval uh, for full authorized use is expected to be coming out this week. And as a result, we have seen an upswing in the number of vaccinations reported in the country. Uh, One of the things that the FDA uh, full approval has led to is the uh, idea that uh, businesses and other entities are now uh, instituting uh, some mandates in some businesses, particularly in the medical field, where uh, hospitals and clinics are making it a requirement that their employees get vaccinated. Um, And what we're seeing is, you know, that's driving part of the upswing. The other thing that's coming out is uh, there have been positive results uh, from testing and evaluation of the vaccine in younger individuals, uh, even down as low as five years old, which, as we are now uh, fully in the swing of getting schools back in session, in-person learning happening, uh, is a big boost to uh, parents out there uh, who have been dealing for more than a year now with distance learning and having to stay home and supervise their child's educations from home. Now these students will be able to uh, return to school And, you know, that is a good thing. Uh, We want our children in classrooms learning in person because that's the best way for them to learn. Uh, But touching back to the idea of um, mandates for vaccines for employees, there was an article that came out of Talking Points Memo uh, on the 25th titled Half of Unvaccinated Workers Say They'd Rather Quit Than Get a Shot but real-world data suggests few are following through. And uh, this article from uh, Jack Barry, Anne Cristiano, and Anne uh, Niemand uh, has been reporting on what exactly this means in terms of the actual workforce here in the country. And and again, this is based on uh, reviews they've done in the medical community. But uh, the, the overall content of the article, and I'll post the link to it on the Facebook page uh, that, will, that is out as of the broadcast today. And what it was saying is um, that as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, a hospital in Lowville, New York, had to shut down its maternity ward when dozens of staffers left their jobs rather than get vaccinated. At least 125 employees at Indiana University Health resigned after refusing to take the vaccine. So the article talks about several cases where um, people have uh, resigned or quit their jobs rather than taking the vaccine as part of a mandate by their employer. But what it is is showing is that even though polls are showing 
that you know a a high number in some cases as high as 50 percent of employees are saying they would rather quit than take the vaccine the numbers of people who actually have followed through on that uh, are you know dramatically lower than that in one part of the article uh, they report that 16 percent of employed respondents would quit start looking for other employment or both if their employer instituted a mandate among those who said they were, quote, vaccine hesitant, close quote, almost a quarter of respondents, we found that 48% would quit or look for another job. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's showing that uh, there, while there is strong feeling about you know, resistance to the vaccine, when it comes down to the fact of, you know, betting your paycheck or betting your, your household income on that, that the commitment rate is, is much lower than that. Um, so it, it uh, cites a couple of examples here. I'll, I'll go through a, a few of them. Houston Methodist Hospital, for example, required its 25,000 workers to get a vaccine by June 7th. Before the mandate, according to the article, 15% of its employees were unvaccinated. By mid-June, that percentage had dropped to 3% and hit 2% by late July. A total of 153 in, uh, workers were fired or resigned, while another 285 were granted medical or religious exemptions, and 332 were allowed to defer it. In some other reports, for example, at Jewish Home Family in Rockley, New Jersey, only five of its 527 workers quit following the vaccine mandate. Two out of 250 workers left Westminster Village in Bloomington, Illinois, and even in deeply conservative rural Alabama, a state with one of the lowest vaccine uptake rates, Hansville Nursing and Rehab Center lost only six of its 268 employees. Um, Delta Airlines, uh, while they didn't mandate a shot, but did in August subject unvaccinated workers to a $200 per month health insurance surcharge, yet the airline said fewer than 2% of uh, its employees have quit over the policy. Uh, and uh, finally, at Indiana, I'm sorry, University Health in Indiana, the 125 workers who quit are out of 35,800 employees, or 0.3%. So, you know, the, the article also offered uh, employees some, some guidance on how to, uh, to minimize the number of workers who might quit over the policy. And, you know, of course, it, it starts with building trust with employees. Uh, also, they recommended that companies should make it as easy as possible to get vaccinated such as by providing on-site vaccine drives, paid time off to get the shot, and deal with the side effects and support for child care or transportation. Uh, you know, it, it's uh, in, important to understand that it is as much a, a practice of messaging as it is a practice of implementing. And, you know, if, if you can... Uh, build that trust, engage trusted messengers, including doctors, colleagues, and family, to share information on the vaccine. That will help uh, you know, reduce the number of people who are likely to leave employment uh, over a, a mandate to get the vaccine. Anecdotally, and what I have seen in uh, my ongoing uh, tracking of this issue, is that, you know, as I've, I've said in prior shows, the number of people who were uh, professed anti-mask, anti-vax uh, uh, proponents uh, that have ended up in hospitals uh, on uh, you know, ventilators, in ICU beds, and so forth, uh, has also served to drive an increase in the number of people getting vaccinated here in the country. And, you know, as I've said, while, you know, I'm, I'm sorry that they have gotten sick, uh, this is totally a, a self-inflicted uh, situation, in my opinion, uh, with all the information that we have seen over the last, uh, you know, two years now, 
since the outbreak of the coronavirus pandemic here in this country, uh, the notion that uh, the, the safety measures are not effective or that you know, the vaccines uh, are ineffective or dangerous or you know, all the other conspiracy theories that have orbited around the uh, vaccinations here in this country. Uh, the, the overriding factor is, as I said at the top, almost uh, 700,000 people, 687,000 Americans have died from COVID. And, you know, that includes people who have died uh, while waiting to be treated for COVID who could not receive treatment because the resources that they need are, you know, being tied up with people who are unvaccinated or, you know, anti-mask proponents uh, who have ended up sick and in intensive care units and on ventilators. So, you know, the, the, the idea that you have a choice as to whether or not you get vaccinated, uh, you have a choice as to whether or not you choose to wear a mask uh, when, when it is conducive to do so, is absolutely part of your American freedoms. However, you know, you have to be aware that these choices can come with consequences, some of them fatal. Uh, so, you know, as always, you know, obviously you're, you're, you're free to choose how you wish to respond to the pandemic, but you should weigh that choice with the wisdom and the information that's out there. You know, as we say on this show, you need to do your own digging, do your own research, dig deeper, dig wider and find the facts, you know, find out what the science is saying, find out, you know, what the the uh, efficiency or efficacy rate of the vaccines are. And we've talked about this, uh, I don't know how many times on this show, as to how effective the vaccines are against the COVID-19. Even on last show, when we brought up the subject of some of the other variants that are being seen around the world and in small numbers uh, here in the U.S. as well, that the COVID-19 vaccines we have are effective against these new variants. And, you know, and one last point to keep in mind uh, as we move off of this uh, subject to our next subject is new variants in the, the COVID pandemic, uh, the COVID disease, uh, are not a, a new thing with this disease. We see this uh, pretty much every year in the uh, treatment that we follow for the flu and for other uh, illnesses that recur year over year. Uh, every year we get uh, requested to get a new flu vaccine or vaccination rather because the flu virus uh, mutates. Uh, it changes as it is passed around through the populations that it infects and as a result the prior uh, vaccines for the flu, last year's version or two years ago version, uh, are no longer as effective. Uh, keep in mind that 180 million people a year or more get vaccinated against the flu every year in this country. And while it is not 100% effective, the number of people that die from the flu is uh, between 30 and 40,000 people a year, you know, in a population of 330 million people uh, in this country. Uh, so it is not perfect. The COVID vaccine is not perfect. Uh, we hear about the breakthrough cases. Yes, they're going to be uh, breakthroughs, even though you may be vaccinated, there's still risk of getting the disease. The benefit of the vaccine at the end of the day is that it lessens the symptoms, uh, decreases almost completely the chances that you're going to be hospitalized because of COVID, and almost completely eliminates the possibility of dying from the disease should you be uh, infected with it. Uh, in my opinion, these benefits uh, and the fact that we've had 687,000 people who have died from this disease make the risk uh, one that is well worth uh, 
taking and the benefit is vastly in your favor. So uh, I guess the bottom line, folks, is, you know, get get the vaccination, practice the safe practices uh, and let's let's stay healthy. Let's keep our country healthy. Let's prevent the spread. Let's shut this vac- this uh, pandemic down. So what are your thoughts on this? Uh, send an email to firedupradio at yahoo.com and let me know what you think of, you know, the vaccines. Um, you know, if you uh, are already vaccinated, uh, kudos to that. If you're not, uh, I'd love to find out why and, and what is making you hesitant of the vaccines. Send me your information, again, firedupradio at yahoo.com, and let's have a discussion about it. All right, um, moving on. And as you recall, um, and what it seems like is we can't have a show go by without having a discussion about Texas. Uh, And this week's going to be no different. Uh, If you remember last week, uh, we talked about the fact that a doctor in Texas um, had performed an abortion on a patient who was beyond the six-week threshold and effectively threw down the gauntlet of challenge uh, for someone out there to uh, sue him. Well, the doctor, whose name is Dr. Alan Braid, uh, he's an OBGYN based in San Antonio, uh, broke the law on purpose. And uh, this this comes out this week in an article in The Guardian uh, that talks about how he is now being sued by two individuals, both of whom are uh, former lawyers who have been disbarred. Uh, and one, as according to the article, uh, was even a uh, uh, convicted felon. And, you know, he, uh, he published an essay, Dr. Braid published an essay in the Washington Post a week ago Saturday Uh, announced that he'd performed an abortion on a woman who was past six weeks of gestation. The limit imposed by Texas's new abortion ban, SB8. The doctor wrote that he felt morally obliged to perform the procedure. His worldview, shaped by his years in obstetric practice, having conversations with patients who revealed that they were terminating their pregnancies because they couldn't afford more kids, Uh, because they had been raped, because they were with abusive partners, or because they wanted to pursue other dreams. Um, You know, he he also talked about in his piece in the Washington Post uh, about how, you know, when he started his practice in 1972, uh, a year prior to the Roe v. Wade decision, um, he found that uh, that he saw three teenagers that year die from illegal abortions. Dr. Braid wrote, quote, uh, one I will never forget when she came into the ER, her vaginal cavity was packed with rags. She died a few days later from massive organ failure caused by a septic infection. Uh, he, he reasoned that to avoid such needless deaths, he had a duty of care, and that's a quote, to women whose newly illegal abortion he performed. So, you know, I I had mentioned when we first brought up the Texas law that the the rubber would meet the road on this, uh, per se, when a lawsuit was filed and would begin to wend its way through the court process and ultimately get to the Supreme Court, where uh, it would... Uh, determine the constitutionality of Texas's law once and for all. Um, he um, he is is expressing his desire to be that test that test case. Well, he got uh, sued by two individuals, um, and and it should be noted here that both are from men living outside of the state of Texas. Uh, were filed against Dr. Braid on last Monday morning. Uh, The first one, a rambling, weird document, and this is according to The Guardian, uh, comes from a convicted felon and disbarred former attorney uh, named Oscar Stilley, who is serving a prison term on house arrest in Arkansas. That complaint, which Stilley seems to have written himself, 
makes multiple references to Dr. Braid's conduct regarding, quote, bastards, and his supposed belief in a God referred to by the Hebrew name Elohim, Stilly, who says he does not personally oppose abortion, feels strongly that, and this is a quote from, from the, the uh, plaintiff, if there's money to be made, it's going to go in Oscar's pocket, close quote. The second lawsuit came from a man named Philippe Gomez of Illinois, another disbarred lawyer who lay, labels himself pro-choice plaintiff whose complaint only asks that SB 8 be overturned. So the, the net result is these test cases, strange and off-putting as they are, now represent the best chance for SB 8 to be vacated and for abortion rights to be returned to Texans, at least for now. So the reason we have this turn of events is um, in part because Dr. Braid has uh, taken on the, the personal liability uh, in his quest to get the question of the right to an abortion to have a fair hearing and be finally and officially adjudicated. Um, the other uh, reason that we're in these, these turn of events is the nature of the way that Texas has framed this law. Normally what happens in a conservative state or a state wishing to restrict uh, reproductive rights, uh, the lawsuits are filed by a state attorney general or they are filed by a staffer on behalf of the governor. In other words, they are filed by an employee of the state. That means that in a suit opposing that, that it is you know, that person, the attorney general, the governor, the secretary of state, or whoever's name is on the bill that is filed uh, or that is signed into law, uh, they are the ones who are the persons involved uh, in the suit as well as the state. In this case, Texas has circumvented that portion of the process along with the uh, outright attack on the constitutionally settled law of you know, Roe v. Wade and Casey and you know, the subsequent cases that have built up the uh, constitutional protection for abortion in this country by taking the state effectively out of the game. That the people who file these suits are not employees of the state, they are private citizens. So the state, in a sense, can play hands off and, you know, let the let the law play out and, you know, let the cost and the consequence be borne by the plaintiff and the defendant uh, with with the state sitting on the sidelines uh, with no involvement at all. And this has has been, you know, something of a eye-opener for other states who are looking at ways of, uh, you know, uprooting uh, Roe and, you know, reversing it ultimately in that they see that if this law is successful and is successfully defended in Texas, that, you know, that is the roadmap for other states uh, to enact the same types of restrictions. Uh, in a sense, what we would end up with is the constitutionally protected right of a woman to receive an abortion uh, as a federal law, but that it could be banned outright in the states um, and, you know, end up just being one big circle after another as we go around between federal and state uh, until something would occur to break the cycle and have it ultimately uh, arbitrated uh, up or down in terms of, of federal protection uh, and state ban. So we will keep track of this. I'm pretty sure this is going to be a, a very high profile and very well covered um, case as it makes its way through the appeals process. And, and um, I, I foresee in, invariably that it will end up on the docket of the Supreme Court um, you know, at some point in the future, you know, maybe it's next year, maybe it's the year after. It depends on how long it takes to get through the court process. 
but we shall see. So we will keep you apprised of that. Um, but again, you know, if in if you are in other states besides Texas, as well as being in Texas yourself, and you feel strongly about this, you need to communicate your feelings to your your state elected officials, uh, to your governor, to your state secretaries, uh, and to your you know your your local representatives as well, and let them know where you stand on this. Um, if you are opposed to the nature of how this law operates. You need to make sure that you are firmly communicating that. And if you are in favor of expanding you know, this process to, to another state, to your state, uh, you need to communicate that as well. But we have got to, as I'm going to talk about um, you know, later on in the show, uh, we the people have got to step up more on a lot of these, these landmark issues and make our voices heard and felt. So uh, to be continued, we'll keep an eye on it. We'll follow it up for you. Um, But right now, we're going to take our first break. You're listening to Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. We'll be right back after the break. Young John Lewis, you're so full of passion. In your lifetime, you will be arrested 40 five times in your mission to help redeem the soul of America. In 1956, when you were only 16 years old, you and some of your brothers and sisters and first cousins went down to the public library trying to get library cards, trying to check out some books. And you were told by the librarian that the library is for whites only, not for colors. I said to you now, when you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, you have a moral obligation to continue to speak up, to speak out. You became so inspired by Dr. King and Rosa Parks that you got involved in the civil rights movement. Something touched you and suggested that you write a letter to Dr. King. You didn't tell your teachers, you didn't tell your mother and your father. Dr. King wrote you back and invited you to come to Montgomery. In the meantime, you have been admitted to a little school in Nashville, Tennessee. was there that you got involved in the sit-ins. You would be sitting there in an orderly, peaceful, non-violent fashion, and someone would come up and spit on you, or put a light cigarette down your back, pour hot water, hot coffee, hot chocolate on you. You got arrested the first time, and you felt so free. You felt liberated. You felt like you had crossed over. Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. You probably would never believe it, but the boy from Troy, as Dr. King used to call you, would become the embodiment of nonviolence in America. America, wake up, for we cannot stop, and we will not and cannot be patient. Two years after you speak at the march on Washington, you will see the face of death leading the march for voting across the Pettus Bridge in Selma. A marching today from Selma to Montgomery. We are marching to our state capital to dramatize to our nation and to the world our determination to win first prize citizenship. Troopers here advance toward the group. You were beaten on that bridge. You were left bloody. You thought you were going to die. But you would make it. 
You will live to see your mother and father cast their first votes. The change we need doesn't come from Washington. Change comes to Washington. You also live to see this segregated nation you live in. Still an African-American president and his family to the White House. And guess what? Guess what, young John? That some divine providence as it is to send a message down through the ages, that man will be nominated on the 45th anniversary of the March on Washington. And all of those signs that you saw as a little child that said white men, colored men, white women, colored women, those signs are gone. And the only places you will see those signs today will be in a book, in a museum, on a video. John, thank you for going to the library with your brothers, your sisters, and cousins. You were denied a library card. You were sad. But one day, you've been elected to the Congress. You wrote a book called Walking with the Wind. And the same library invited you to come back for a book signing where blacks and white citizens showed up. And after the book signing, they gave you a library card. believe as Dr. King and A. Philip Randolph and others taught you that we're one people and it doesn't matter whether we're black or white, Latino, Asian American or Native American that maybe our foremothers and our forefathers all came here in different ships but we're all in the same boat now John you understood the words of Dr. King when he said we must learn to live together as brothers and sisters. If not, we would perish as fools. Rest in peace, Representative John Lewis, and thank you, and God bless you. And we're back. We're back here with Fired Up, right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. As always, I appreciate it. And uh, let's jump right back into uh, what we want to talk about this week. Um, And we are going to revisit something that we have talked about a few times here on this show uh, over the, the time that we've been on the air, and that's redistricting. And for those that don't know, uh, a quick primer on what redistricting is, that is a um, constitutionally required element uh, of the every 10-year census in this country that is taken. And as a result of uh, the count of the population, uh, congressional districts uh, for the U.S. House of Representatives are recomputed based on the number of constituents uh, in each district. Uh, as we said before, uh, with the population estimate that came out of the census uh, that's just been completed, it gives us a U.S. population of some 331 million people uh, as of January of this year. And if you divide that by 435 members of Congress uh, at the federal level, that means that each representative, that represents 761,000 constituents for each uh, congressional representative. Um, So not only does the census count how many people are in this country, it also counts uh, where they live. And based on that and the aforementioned, you know, constituents per representative, uh, in some cases, uh, states will gain 
seats in Congress if their populations have grown, and other states may lose seats in Congress if their populations have shrunk. And in, in addition, it will also uh, be information on what party those, uh, those constituents uh, vote under. The net result of all of that is that every 10 years, uh, the congressional seats that are assigned uh, in the states will change based on the criteria I just mentioned. And, you know, this year is no different. As I have said in the past few shows, uh, we're starting to see information come out about, you know, where uh, states are gaining seats and where they're losing seats. And there was an article that came out of the Associated Press, uh, and this came out just yesterday, um, and it talks about uh, redistricting is big, uh, say for big cities, um, and you know weighs in on the uh, Washington power balance of Congress. So the article uh, goes in to talk about the cities of New York, L.A., and Chicago. Uh, those um, cities have you know, now started to see what their new district plans are going to look like. Um, and the article you know, includes, um, as congressional district redistricting gets underway, some of the country's most populous cities are taking prominent roles in reshaping the balance of power in Washington. And that's good news for Democrats. Uh, robust growth in the liberal strongholds of New York and metropolitan Chicago are poised to give Democrats an edge as their political maps are redrawn to adjust in changes in po population over the past decade. While both New York and Illinois are losing congressional seats, their urban booms mean that the newly drawn districts are likely to favor Democrats adding to the party's national total and making up for probable losses elsewhere. Um, the article goes in to say how New York is, in particular, giving Democrats hope. The most populous city in the United States added some 629,000 new residents, more people than live in Wyoming. Uh, it's a bright spot for Democrats who had braced for a grim redistricting season, uh, Republican-controlled states across the Sun Belt gained four U.S. House seats as well as a new seat in Montana, leaving some analysts to predict House Democrats could be relatively easily gerrymandered out of power. Arizona, Florida, and Georgia, and Texas are among the places where Republicans are expected to use redistricting to benefit their ranks. But... Census data released in July detailing the extent of urban growth, even in northern states losing seats, offered opportunities for Democrats. Uh, is in a quote from Blair Horner, the executive director of the New York Public Interest Research Group, he says, quote, with red states clearly going after Democratic members of Congress, New York is really a prize for the Democratic Party. Uh, if they can squeeze out some more districts, it could make the difference in who, who controls the House after the 2022 elections. Let, let's jump out and, and dive into that a little bit. Um, as we discussed in, um, on the show a few weeks ago, uh, the population shifts saw several states uh, that were Democratic-leading Democratic states, that is, more Democratic representatives than Republican representatives, yet the state governments are in the control of Republicans. And that's a key point to keep in mind, um, that some of these states, you know, the, the ones I mentioned above, you know, New York, Illinois, uh, and uh, Los Angeles, California, are actually going to increase the number of Democratic uh, or Democrat representatives uh, in the state, even though the overall number of seats in that state is going to shrink. Um, you know, and going back to the article, for Democrats who now control the House of Representatives by an eight-seat margin with three seats vacant, there's little room for error. You know, and historically, midterm elections 
generally favor the party out of power, putting pressure on Democrats to squeeze any advantage they might get out of the redistricting process that happens every 10 years. So, you know, the, the population gains that are being reported have all been in northern and northeastern Illinois, in, in particular in one area, where the Democrats are going to be stronger, and the losses have been central and southern Illinois, uh, where we have Republicans representing us. So, you know, there, there's going to be some interesting mathematics that, are, that occurs as Democrats look at losing, you know, the overall number of seats in, you know, several states, but yet gaining the number of representatives in that state because of the population shifts inside the state itself. Um, you know, now, that's not to say that this is going to go unchallenged. Um, you know, for example, there are some Democrats who worry that, you know, making these changes will come at a cost, especially, especially when Republicans control the process in some 20 states, including ones expanding their congressional delegations. Uh, for example, a power-sharing agreement in Oregon unraveled when the House Speaker, a Democrat, rescinded a deal that would have given Republicans veto power over redrawn maps expanding the state's current five-member congressional de delegation to six. Republicans immediately called foul and braced for a Democrat-led gerrymander that would allow national Democrats to add a seat. Um, you know, and it, it, it goes on and talks about California. You know, a Democratic bedrock may not uh, be much uh, a factor. Heavily Democratic Los Angeles gained about 100,000 more residents, but the state's redistricting commission is among the most independent in the country. Exer experts say it won't be beholden to the partisanship that often leads to gerrymandering. You know, and you know, just as a note, New York's redistricting commission was established as an independent panel uh, in, you know, in the Democrat-controlled legislature, and it has final authority over the new district lines. Republicans, as well as good governance watchdogs, are wary that the Democratic lawmakers will reject new lines recommended by the commission, which is drawing new districts for the first time since it was established by voters in 2014, and devise their own lines to benefit the party. Does that sound familiar? It's something we've talked about Republicans doing for years uh, throughout the South as, as part of their Southern strategy, uh, you know, ignoring any independent uh, gerrymandering or district lines that are drawn and redrawing lines in favor of their party. Um, games being played, people. Games are being played. So, you know, it, it's clear that we, we the people, need to make sure we are keeping a close eye on the redistricting process in our individual states and make sure that we are weighing in as near the start or like right now uh, with our state redistricting committees to make sure that they understand that, you know, that we are looking for fairly drawn districts that represent the, the true constituencies and not these party stacked districts that are intended to, you know, to establish long-term power control uh, within a state. And as I've said before, this is not just a Republican game. This is played by both sides. Uh, the Democrats are showing, as the article talks about, the Democrats are showing that they are willing to flex that redistricting muscle just as much as the Republicans do in the states that they control. So something else to keep an eye on, uh, something else to make sure we're communicating with our elected officials about that, you know, we want to see districts that truly represent the population that's in place there and not just the party that's in place there. So, you know, another call to action for the fired up crew out there, you guys. And also, you know, what do you think about what's going to happen in your state? Uh, let me know. Tell me what state you're in and what the status of your redistricting plans are. 
and uh, send it in an email to firedupradio at yahoo.com and let, let's have a discussion on it. All right. So, you know, as as I've said many times, the, the purpose of this show is to uh, discuss the the politics uh, of the American system uh, over and and instead of wherever possible, the politicians. Um, you know, I'm I'm concerned that that all of you out there are as well informed as possible, uh, are getting information from as as wide sources as possible. Um, you know, I routinely over the course of the week review information from you know twenty or more uh, new sites and new sources uh, as I collect the shows that I bring each week and believe me I there are a lot of of headlines left on the table that don't get discussed on this show but are are ones nonetheless that uh, you should be finding out about and checking into as you do your diligence and as I also say you know again it is not just the Republicans that are are playing the game Democrats are playing it as well um, let's look at some of the headlines that I found from the Associated Press that kind of illustrates the point I'm making here. So you may have heard over the past week that the uh, Democrat-controlled House uh, has okayed uh, President Biden's $3.5 trillion uh, social infrastructure bill and you know that there is now a, a lot of pressure being placed to get both of these bills the earlier passed uh, $1.2 trillion hard infrastructure bill and this new $3.5 trillion, uh, quote, soft infrastructure bill uh, through the Senate and up to President Biden's desk. And, you know, the, the battle lines are drawn. Um, the Republicans are digging in. They realize that they cannot stop the Democrats from passing this because the Democrats control the House uh, and that they they have a a uh, majority in the senate uh and right now the struggle is whether or not the republicans are going to uh implement the filibuster to hold up and delay the passage of these two bills um you know so the democrats have have uh, gambled on getting the two bills through as separate pieces of legislation uh personally i think that since they have passage uh, in in both chambers um, of the the smaller bill, that they should move forward with that and get that signed and get it enacted now, and then you know focus attention on getting the three and a half trillion dollar bill uh, finalized and across the finish line and onto the president's desk. Um, Democrats seem to be reluctant to to go that aggressive with their their approach to this um i find that to be a a strategic and tactical limitation on their part uh they have the majorities uh they can get it done uh through both their majorities and through the reconciliation process to get these bills signed and get them onto the president's desk now the argument is that there is nothing that says that should the Republicans take over either you know control of uh, you know both houses uh, in the 2022 midterms, uh, they could of course then pass uh, you know bills that rescind those bills. Now it it is highly likely that should that happen and those bills wind up on the president's desk. Uh, the president would most likely veto them. Then the battle becomes, do they have enough votes to override the president's veto and make those actions, you know, codified into law over the objections of the Democratic president? Um, you know, so, you know, the, the battle is not over. It's going to go on for a while. Um, however, if the, the Democrats uh, learned anything from what happened with the last Democratic president, President Obama, uh, who had a uh, majority in the House and in the Senate uh, and, you know, struggled at best 
to get things done uh, because of the Republican-led filibuster efforts. And then in the midterms, uh, the first set of midterms in 2010, they lost control of the Senate and you know, essentially much of uh, Obama's uh, uh, agenda was scuttled with the exception of his you know, uh, Affordable Care Act, um, which was managed to get through on bipartisan support. Um, it is less likely, in my opinion, that such a strategy would work in this go-around simply because uh, the, the Republican base and the right wing of the Republican Party, particularly the extreme right wing, um, is more uh, entrenched and established than it was uh, in the Obama administration years. Um, and, you know, there, there seems to be a reluctance, again, on the Democrats to play the hardball necessary in order to get these things done. Um, there's an article also in the AP that talks about um, Biden risking losing support for dem from Democrats amid D.C. gridlock. This goes to you know, what I've been saying on this show for quite a while, that the, the one thing that is, is consistent with a lot of the, the, the voters, both Democrat, Republican, and Independent, is their total um, disgust for the amount of gridlock that occurs in Washington, D.C. Uh, they, they want to see things done, um, not necessarily at the point of a gun, but in a bipartisan fashion. And, you know, it, it goes to something I said earlier in the show where the appearance is that politicians, and, and I'm going to talk about this in a minute, politicians are, are not um, walking the walk that they talk about uh, with regard to taking care of the, the rank and file citizens of this country. They're all about, you know, taking care of their base. They're all about taking care of their core constituencies. But the things that matter to everyday uh, Americans out there seem to, you know, get a good talk about, but don't get the, the boots on the ground action that's needed. So, you know, and, and we'll use that. We'll use that as a segue into um, an, an editorial opinion that I want to talk about, and we will we'll wrap the show on this. And, and it is simply the point I was just making. Um, what we have seen in the last uh, three or four presidential cycles, uh, going back even, even before uh, President Obama uh, took office, um, is that you know, politicians uh, have become real good at offering lip service and sound bites uh, solutions to problems facing, you know, the, the vast majority of American households, regardless of political leaning, regardless of the divide in the country. There are some core things, what, what over the years came to be known as kitchen table issues, such as, you know, taxes and education and jobs and infrastructure and all all of these core things that every one of us regardless of our station in life in this country um, have have need of in our everyday lives um, you know our roads and bridges are in a terrible state of disrepair and it doesn't matter whether you're driving across that in a 65 Chevy or if you're driving across it in a 2021 Rolls-Royce a bad bridge is a bad bridge um, but yet we see time and time again how you know politicians regardless of political stripe will stand up and offer all of these lofty words about you know what needs to be done with the American infrastructure, what needs to be done with our, our school systems, what needs to be done with our debt situation, with college debt, and you know all of these things. But when it comes time to sit down, put pen to paper, and put foot to ground to get something done, it just seems to start going around in circles, finger pointing, and accusations and political grandstanding. 
um, you know, as, as long as the American people, and again, I'm not talking Democrat, I'm not talking Republican, I'm talking American, as long as we all stand firm with our political leaders on these core things that affect all of us, you don't have to be a Republican to be impacted by the quality of education in this country. You don't have to be a Democrat to be impacted by the, the unfairness of the tax structures in this country. You don't have to be an independent to be affected by the, the, the health care system in this country, as the pandemic has shown us. As long as we continue to allow politicians and this, this notion of personality politics in that we, we elect the people we, quote, like the most, close quote, rather than the people who are best at getting the job done that we send them there to do, uh, as long as we continue to hold on to this trend of personality politics over substantive abilities, we are going to keep seeing this gridlock in the nation's capital, gridlock in our local state houses, gridlock in our city councils, um, where people are playing to the camera, they're playing to the media, and they are not addressing the core needs of the American people. And, you know, it, it, is, it is something that affects this country from coast to coast and border to border. Um, as long as we continue to allow personality politics to rule, we will be stuck in or on the merry-go-round of inactivity and gridlock that we see happening in Washington, D.C., that we see happening in our local uh, jurisdictions as well. Um, the bottom line you know, and, and as I've said so many times, this show is about having a call to action and taking those action steps. The bottom line here is we, the American people, have a call to action to reach out to get a hold of our elected officials from the local to the federal and make them understand that we hold them accountable. We need to be willing to look at the performance records of our elected officials, again, local to federal, and those that are not performing, whether they are a first-term uh, state rep or a first-term city council member or first-term senator or first-term congressman in Washington, D.C., if they are not getting the job done that we sent them there to do, they need to go. We need to vote them out of office and we need to be clear that they understand that we are holding them accountable, that they are accountable to us, to the people. And as long as we continue to allow them to hear our words and, and see us outside the gates, you know, protesting and then go on with business as usual behind the closed doors, we are going to continue to have the problems we have here in this country. So... Fired up listeners, again, learn, get your research, check out many sources, not just the ones you're used to listening to, but listen to some of the ones you've never listened to before. Um, you know, get in communication, dig wider, dig deeper, educate yourself so that you understand the issues as it affects you and get that message to your political leaders. That's how we affect real change in this country. Uh, it, it is not about who has the biggest rallies. It's not about whose flags look the coolest. It's about who is getting the job done. All right? And it is just as simple as that. So that being said, we'll wrap up there. Uh, as always, thank you so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Please, everybody, stay safe. Protect yourself from the COVID out there. Get vaccinated. Um, you know, it, it is the best defense against this illness. Um, you know, even, you know, it, it is, it is FDA approved. They are safe. Uh, 387 million people have received vaccinations and it's the best way to protect yourself. Everybody stay safe out there. This is Steve. You're listening to Fired Up right here 
on WJMSRadio.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I look forward to talking to you all again in seven days. Wherever you stand, calling every woman, calling every man. We're the generation we can't afford to wait. The future started yesterday, and we're already late.